Good morning. So like Scott said, we are launching into, we're starting a five-part series here leading up to Easter and uh, going to walk through, we're going to close out the Gospel of Mark uh, leading up into Easter and walk through the passion narrative just week after week here. Um, You guys remember what it was like to eat out in a restaurant? (laughs) It's been like a year, almost exactly, I think, since things started shutting down. Um, Or like, remember what it's like to have people over and share a meal at your house? (laughs) Hopefully some of us are still doing that. Um, Meals are one of the most important things that we can do as human beings. It's one of the most important social things that we can do together. You have to eat, right? I mean, we know, like, food is fuel and all that. Like, the athletes know that. Uh, But food is much more than fuel. It's much more than just something that we need to survive. Uh, Sharing a meal together is one of the most important things that we can do to build relationships. Families, they say families that eat together stay together. They tend to be closer. We build relationships, friendships, when you sit across a cafe table over a cup of coffee, when you have lunch with somebody. This is how you develop friendships. When you have another family into your home, You start to get knit together as friends. It's deep human instinct. I believe this is a God-given thing that we have, that we, we mark even special moments are marked and remembered by a meal. When it's your anniversary, you take your wife out, you share a meal. Your birthday, usually there's cake involved or something. We mark moments, important moments with meals. They're communal. There's an element of, let's remember this together. Let's celebrate this together. Let's think about this together. Sharing a meal, especially a festive one, it binds together a family, a group of friends, colleagues, whatever it is. Pre-COVID, the tech industry realized this, and they, they were actually in, uh, in, in the buildings. Remember, you used to go to places to go to work? Um, they were actually putting restaurants, twofold. It, it actually kept people on site so they didn't have to leave, save money. But uh, putting restaurants in the office place, they were putting espresso machines. I, we were dealing with this with, with coffee where... Uh, they would want espresso machines strategically placed around where tech engineers are. A, because caffeine's amazing. B, uh, because coffee has a way of you, you socially connect over coffee. And that furthers productivity. It furthers creativity. It, it helps ideas grow. Sometimes a meal, sharing a meal or a cup of coffee, or whatever it is, it, it says more than we could ever put into words. 
to enjoy a meal with someone. It says more about who we are, how we feel about each other, hopes and joys that we share together. Meals not only feed our body, they do that, but they seem in some way to do something more significant. It says something. It does something. It actually changes us so that after we share a meal with someone, part of who we are is actually the people who shared a meal together. Meals, I know I'm talking a lot about food and you're all going to get hungry, but meals are very important to the story, the fabric of Scripture. The story opens up, doesn't open up, but it goes wrong with a meal. The very beginning of the Bible, humans are plunged into darkness, sin, and death because of a meal gone wrong. The wrong kind of meal. They ate that forbidden fruit in the garden. Throughout the entire Old Testament, there's this theme of hospitality and inviting people in to share a meal. Some of the most important events that you can read about through the narrative of Scripture happened around a meal. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes, he comes eating meals with sinners. Tim Chester wrote a book. I have several references to books today, so if you're interested in books on this topic, Tim Chester wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. And he poses this question. He says, how would you complete the following sentence? The Son of Man came. Three times... In the New Testament, three times in the Bible, this statement occurs. The Son of Man came. First one that comes to mind typically, the Son of Man, this is Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, we know that one. Second one, Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Okay. But Matthew eleven nineteen, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus was known for his table fellowship. He was known as one who ate and drank with sinners. He came eating and drinking. It's through the sharing of those meals with sinners that he brings the message, the good news, the gospel of his kingdom was done around the table. And then the story of Scripture ultimately ends with this great banquet, the wedding feast, a wonderful feast. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. The story, the narrative opens with a, feet, with a meal gone bad. It centers around our passage this morning and it ends in a wedding feast. But our passage this morning is the, the hinge point the story hinges on. This meal that Jesus gave to his disciples, ultimately that he gave to us, is the hinge. 
It has significance for the Christian church throughout history. In fact, this meal, communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever, Eucharist, there's, there's tons of different names for it. Uh, this unites all believers across all denominations throughout history. This is one thing that unites us. There's tons of things we disagree on. In this, we're united. We all share this meal together. It's the one thing that all Christians do. They come to the Lord's table. They eat this sacramental meal. Today, we're going to look at the origin of this meal, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some implications. So we're going to talk about uh, the event in history as it happened, and then the practice for us as disciples. Okay? I know it's a little quiet. It's like, you guys okay? Okay, good. All four Gospels tell us this story. All four Gospels felt it was important to include the story of the Lord's Supper. They each have their, as they do, they each have their own minor focuses, their, their uh, emphasis. And for Mark, this meal has actually a, a bit of a somber feel to it. As we read it this morning, I, I hope you caught that a little bit. Mark makes it clear, ultimately, that Jesus had complete foreknowledge of the events that were about to take place. This meal, the events in this meal, show that Jesus knew what was about to happen. There was no surprise. He had complete foreknowledge. The opening section of this passage shows us that it sets the timeline, um, and it's sets the timeline for what's about to happen. It's very reminiscent of the scene when Jesus first arrived to Jerusalem. You remember when Jesus first arrived to Jerusalem, we looked at this now a couple months ago, he sent disciples in to, to, the, to the city to find a donkey to bring him in, remember? And it was like, how, did, how was that all arranged? Go in, you'll find this, this colt tied, untie it, say the Lord has need. Similar situation here. Jesus, he either somehow secretly planned this, unlikely, or he had complete foreknowledge that this guy would be carrying water and he would happen to have a room prepared. It was time for the Passover meal. Gosh, how perfect the timing. The Passover meal. Remember, the Passover was this feast that had been celebrated since the children of Israel left Egypt. On that night, when the final plague in Egypt happened, the Lord told the people to sacrifice a lamb, to eat it, and to place blood around the doorposts, remember? And if they had done that, then when the angel of death came to kill the firstborn sons, it would pass over the house. Passover. They were spared because of the sacrifice of this blameless lamb. Passover was 
when the Jewish people remembered and celebrated that great exodus. Celebrating the Passover was and is still a deeply religious act. And also, for many centuries, in which the Jews suffered oppression, it was a deeply political act. Think about it. It says loud and clear, despite the appearances, despite what this may look like, we are God's free people. That's what this meal said for them as they were partaking in the, in the Passover feast. They were remembering that we have the God who is able and capable and willing to free the people from the hands of Pharaoh. It sustains loyalty. It encourages faith, hope, love. This meal was deeply important, this Passover Seder. And you'll notice, this is an interesting just thing to notice. None of the Gospels actually talk, except for the fact that they, they sacrificed a lamb, none of the Gospels actually talk about the main course of this meal. It's all about the bread and the wine. There definitely would have been a main course. They, they sacrificed the lamb. But at this meal, at the Lord's Supper, the lamb was not on the table. He was at the table. Jesus was the main course. Remember, John the baptizer, when he first saw Jesus, what did he say? He said, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, 6 and on, a couple little sections here. The Lord had, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was at the table. This Passover meal, Jesus with his disciples had a bit of a wet blanket on it, though. You know when there's that, like, social awkwardness around the table? Jesus, again, showing total and complete foreknowledge. He tells his disciples that one of them would betray him. Verse 19 says that they began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, is it I? They're noticeably bummed out. Jesus just said, one of you guys is going to betray me. Culturally, to betray the one who has given you bread was a horrendous act. Eating bread with somebody, eating bread with somebody barred you socially from hostile acts towards that person. Table fellowship for them in, this, in that day was far more significant than simply a social gathering. To share a meal meant to establish and perpetuate a relationship. 
It meant to become one's one company with those who you are with at the table. Eating together was evidence of peace, trust, forgiveness, brotherhood. This is why it's so controversial for Jesus to eat with sinners as he did. It was scandalous. And Mark records that they all said, is it I? They all said it. And while we know that ultimately it was Judas that will betray him, all of the disciples will shortly turn their backs on Jesus. There may have been only one traitor in a formal sense, but by dawn the next morning, all the disciples will have betrayed Jesus. If not from greed like Judas, then from weakness at the garden, from fear, from cowardice. Surely not I. They all had some introspection to do in this context. And I love that Jesus is, yeah. He doesn't calm them down. He doesn't say like, no, 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 not you, Peter. He just says, it's one of the 12. One of you. So the meal goes on. Remember, this is a Passover meal. Mark doesn't record this simply because Jesus, it was Jesus' last meal with his boys. He records this. It's important because he did and said things that changed the course for these guys and for us. He connects the elements of the meal with his coming suffering and with his death. During a Passover Seder, during a Passover meal, the head of the family would take bread that was a part of every meal. He would lift it up and he would say, Praise be thou, our Lord and God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And with an amen from around the table, he would break that bread and he would pass it out and distribute it to those that are eating the meal. Jesus breaks from the Passover script a little bit. This would have like massively stood out. These guys had done this year after year, their entire life. And Jesus changes the script a little bit. What's interesting is that the formula that Jesus uses here is not the first time we've seen Jesus do this. The disciples throughout this gospel, throughout the narrative, the story of Jesus' ministry, they have failed to understand the significance of bread over and over again. Two previous times we see this formula. Jesus uh, takes the bread, he blesses it, breaks it, and distributes it. In Mark 6.36, the disciples implore Jesus to send the crowds away. Remember this? 
so that they could go and find something to feed themselves. Jesus told them to give them something to eat. Their response was, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Remember, that mental calculator kicked in. Are we to go and to spend that much on bread to give this crowd something to eat? No. Jesus will supply the bread. He commanded them to sit together in groups. He blessed the bread, broke it, and gave it to them. Gave it to the disciples to divide among them. They ate and were filled. Twelve baskets were left over. Later that night, when Jesus came walking to them on the sea, they were terrified. And Mark says they were terrified because they had not understood the loaves. Their hearts were hard. The second feeding occurs across the lake, now in Gentile territory. Follows the exact same pattern. When he asked his disciples to feed the crowd, they exclaimed, we're in a remote place. Can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus took their simple, meager supply of food. He blessed them, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to give to the people. Seven baskets were left over and gathered up. Jesus now had fed both Jew and Gentile miraculously using this same formula. Bread had become this symbol of Jesus' mission, and the disciples did not get it. So at the the Last Supper, Jesus breaks the bread, proclaims, Take, this is my body. They don't get it. This, this word, take, this is my body, that's more like, it's, it would be better translated possibly, is like, this is my person, my whole being, myself. It is the gift of Jesus himself, holy, without reserve, nothing held back, his self-offering to his disciples. And next he takes the cup. During the normal course of a Passover Seder, there would have been four toasts, so to speak, four scripted drinkings of wine. Jesus takes the cup, he gives thanks for it, and they drink. And after they drink, Jesus pronounces, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Covenants, this would be very reminiscent for them. The, the old covenant with Moses was established with the same statement. This is the blood of the covenant. It was sprinkled. This is huge. You think years of us taking communion as this being a part of our normal Christian life uh, have caused some of this to like not have the same effect. But like, think for a second. 
What would this have meant for a Jewish person in the first century? You've just drunk from the cup, this red wine, and the host says, after you've drank it, oh yeah, this is my blood. Jewish aversion to blood is notorious. Genesis 9 says uh, it completely forbid the consumption of blood. Jewish practice, they're eating, uh, actually, they would have to drain the animal in order for human consumption. They'd have to drain the animal of blood. To drink blood was not only to break the universal commandment, but it was to desecrate something that was holy. The law forbid the drinking of blood because it was the life the life of the creature was in the blood. It had been ordained by God and it was used as a means of atonement. The life was in the blood. Remember, Jesus is the main course here. It's all about him. When Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, poured out, what he means is, I am the one that Isaiah and that John the baptizer spoke of. I am the Lamb of God, which takes all the other lamb. I am the Lamb of God, which all the other lambs pointed towards. The Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And on the cross where he is headed, Jesus got ultimately what we deserved. The sin, guilt, brokenness of the world, it fell upon him. And he loved us enough to endure that for us. Jesus tells them to take the bread and cup. That word take is important. They didn't work for it. They can't earn it. They didn't contribute to it. Take the free gift. What Jesus instituted at this meal marked these men. They could never eat bread or drink wine again without deep remembrance. You guys, you guys experience this when you eat something and like flood of memories come back? You smell a smell, and then all of a sudden memories come back. Can you imagine every time these guys smell fresh-baked bread or wine? The memories that would flood back. This was the beginning of something. Mark ends his account here with the Lord's Supper with this statement of expectation from Jesus. Jesus is reassuring his disciples, no matter what happens in the next 24 hours, he says he will enjoy table fellowship with them again in the kingdom. This meal that we read about as a true story that happened in history, it points to the past, both in remembrance of the first exodus and in remembrance of this true story that happened with Jesus. It points to the present, I think, surely not I. 
And it points to the future and this hope when we will eat and drink with Jesus in the kingdom. These men, like I said, could never eat or drink again without thinking and remembering Jesus. Okay. So how did we go from a Passover meal to those pre-packed little discs, I don't even know what you call those things, and, uh, and grape juice? The Lord's Supper is a practice for the life of disciples. This is something that we practice. We know that early in the church development, early in church history, this was a normal part of the rhythm of the church. In Acts 2, the church was marked by regularly breaking bread. This was something that they did regularly. Paul discusses it extensively in 1 Corinthians multiple times. We even have letters of Roman officials trying to figure out what to do about the Christians practicing this thing called the love feast. That's what, that's what they called it. They called it the love feast, the agape feast. So they're trying, to, like, they're trying to figure out what do we do about this? They're not actually doing anything wrong, but it's clearly significant. The habitual practice of the love feast was, for the early church, an incubator in which Christians learned to accept outsiders, to offer generosity to the poor, to have fellowship with those in lower status, to practice the way of Jesus. Jesus came eating and drinking, after all. I want to look briefly at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's the clearest teaching we have in the New Testament about this supper and the way it became a practice. I didn't actually get it to the screen, so it's not going to be up there. But if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to read this section. Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because you... Uh, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Okay, that's pretty heavy if the, your pastor saying, when you guys get together, it's actually worse off. <laughs> um, okay, verse 18. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you, uh, in, in order that those who are genuine among you to be recognized. Verse 20. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each, so he's, he's describing their situation. They think that they're doing the Lord's supper. They think that they're having communion. He says, for in your eating, each one of you goes ahead with your own meal. One goes hungry and the other gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What was happening is, just some context here. 
The, the love feast, so to speak, was happening. This, this regular meal, it was a full meal, church gathering, was happening. And the wealthy people who could host this meal didn't have to work, or at least didn't have to work that hard. And so they were enjoying this meal early in the day. And the poorer among them, the slaves even, among that church fellowship, had to work all day. And they'd show up, and all the wine would be gone, and all the food would be gone, and they couldn't partake. So Paul's pretty ticked. He's like, what are you doing? I'm going to jump to 23. For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when, he had, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's included in Matthew or in Luke, one or the other. Verse 25, and in the same way, he took the cup and after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself so that he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats or drinks judgment on himself. That is heavy. I want to jump down here to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. For the early church, it was their practice to eat together regularly. This was a normal part of their rhythms. Weekly, at least it seems, through church history. Apparently in Corinth, in Corinth things were getting a little crazy. Paul says that what they were doing, it may have been a meal together, but it wasn't the Lord's Supper. It wasn't this intentional remembering of the gospel and the cross and all of those implications in the way that I relate to the person across the table from me. Remember that Jesus, at his meal, he ate with, he had table fellowship. He ate with traitors, cowards, and doubters. This is not a meal of status. This is not a meal of position. This is a meal of grace. David Fitch, in his book, Seven Practices of the Church on Mission, said this, The Lord's table is about presence. Surely it is about eating, but ultimately it is a practice that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around the table where you eat. Then in the process, we are able to connect 
with the other people around the table, our lives are then reordered socially by his presence. I think this is the forgotten sort of piece of the Lord's Supper for many of us. We take communion as these little packets weekly. We think about the cross, but I think we would do well to at least add in this element of sitting around the table with brothers and sisters in Christ and with those who are far from Christ and remembering the gospel. In Luke's gospel and in Paul's retelling, Jesus adds this line, do this in remembrance of me. I think we read that and we think cognitively remember, like bring it to mind. N.T. Wright says, the hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term remember or remembrance or memorial, it does not mean merely to bring something to mind or to like cognitively remember. It refers in some way to bringing that past story, the divine action of the past, into the present, into the present audience to become a part of the story and to receive the benefits of that story. There is a difference between simply a social meal or coffee with some friends and somehow being intentional in our remembrance of him. The task here is to keep him in front and center, to keep Jesus at our mind, to keep the gospel center, to become a part of the story, the implications of the story. The hope would be that every time you you smell bread, every time you see a bottle of wine, whatever it is, that you would think of the gospel, that it would be the first thing that comes to your mind, it would be the present of the gospel. Every time you sit across the table from a friend, the cross comes to your mind as you give thanks for the food, for the drink. That the gospel would be the topic of conversation whether they're a believer or not. That's the impact of this meal. That's the missional effect of this meal for us as disciples. There's also a worship aspect, a liturgical aspect, a way that we worship. We've wrestled with this because for the early church, it was not just a wafer and juice. It was a full meal. But there is somehow an element in this. I mean, there's a lot of history here. If you guys want to, like, talk through the history of how we got from a meal to what we have back there. I'd love to chat through that history. Um, There's lots of reasons. But I think there is a element in our worship of taking communion in the public gathering that is beautiful and necessary. John Mark Hicks is another book called Enter the Water, Come to the Table. He says, When we eat and drink, we renew our covenant with God. 
we pledge ourselves to keep that covenant. It is a moment of rededication and of recommitment. In the context of the worship experience, we voice our commitment to live worthy of the gospel. That's what happens when we, when we take together. We bow and we take up our cross. We call Jesus Lord again and we follow him into the world as obedient servants. The supper is the ritual moments where we renew our covenant vows that we took at baptism. Every week we have this opportunity together as a church to remember the gospel, to renew our vow to follow him and to take up our cross. When we take communion together any given Sunday, it is an opportunity for you to re-up, to gospel yourself, remind yourself of the story, the narrative, the good news, and to re-up in your allegiance to follow in the way of the cross. So this week, when we take communion here in a few minutes, I want that to do that. Re-up. Remember the cross. Remember the good news. Remember this story and bring it into now. And I do want to encourage you. We're, gonna, we're actually going to, as we get closer to Easter, we're going to, the Thursday leading up, we're going to encourage you all, all of us, to have another family over and to do some form of a Seder meal, a Passover meal together. But this week even, I just want to encourage you, to whatever degree you're comfortable, <laughs> sit across the table from somebody. Share a meal. Share coffee. Whatever it is. This is an important thing for us as Christians. You are not meant to be alone. We need each other. We need table fellowship. It strengthens, encourages, and reminds us of the mission that's ahead. Amen? I'm going to pray and the worship team come back up. God, we thank you. I thank you for your blood that was poured out. The blood of the new covenant. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. That you are that Passover lamb to which all other lambs' sacrifices pointed. You are the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, I pray that you would help us to remember the gospel. You'd help us to remember the implications of the gospel and to bring that story forward into the now that we're a part of this story. Jesus, we bless you and we ask that you would have your way. Amen.